So it really was a watershed moment for me, one of those breakthrough moments that we pay hundreds of dollars to therapists for. I found myself sitting on my therapist's couch. Session number six or seven, I'd been in a bit of a rut, and it was one of those full-on snot cry sessions. I don't know if you've ever had one of those with your counselor before, but I had unleashed the beast without restraint. I was angry. I was mad, I was frustrated, I was depressed, I was anxious, and I sat there with snot coming out of my nose and tears flowing out of my eyes, saying the same thing over and over. How much longer do I have to live with this narrative? Why can't I get out of this entrenched stronghold? When will this depression be relieved? Why can't I get free from this anxiety? I've been doing this therapy, discipleship, prayer, church leadership thing for 20 years. I should have arrived by now. What is wrong with me? And like a good therapist, his response was disorienting, to say the least. With straight face and great calm and gentleness, as all good therapists do, he said, do you think, Dan, that this pain and depression may be your identity? And I was like, What? have you ever considered the possibility that maybe some of the freedom you're longing for and this narrative that you want to overcome and its destructive power, maybe you're not getting free from it because you don't want to. And I wanted to stand up and slap him, but it just struck me deeply. He said, Do you, have you ever considered that maybe because you have been in this narrative and in this psychological, emotional space for so long that you're afraid of the unknown? You're afraid of who you might be or what you would be without this pain? <laughs> I've been sitting on that for about two years now. Watershed, breakthrough, incredible. What I've come to realize is that all of us, humanity in general, has a very complicated relationship with joy and happiness, particularly we affluent Western moderns. We have a very complicated relationship with joy. In my wounded psyche, I was protecting myself from pain by attaching myself to that pain. What I was doing was playing this sort of set the bar super low, expect the absolute worst. This is the way it's always going to be. Unconscious game to protect myself from further disappointment. How many of us find ourselves sometimes doing something as silly as that? There's a hand raised in the crowd. Oh, a few more. Thank you, my friends. <laughs> Renowned researcher and shame guru, Brene Brown, she says, joy is the most vulnerable emotion we experience. And if you cannot tolerate joy, what you start doing is dress rehearsing tragedy. As a pastor, I'm invited into the stories of humans every single day of my life. And in observing myself and others, what I'm seeing in this modern moment is a conscious avoidance of joy. There is a constant dress rehearsal for tragedy. It's a common thing amongst all of us. Why? It's because we are assaulted by bad news every single day. Folks, we were not designed to wake up every morning and have the truck run us over on our phones with anxiety. We just weren't. 
we have been confronted over these past few years with our inability to control virtually every aspect of our life and experience. And so it makes perfect sense that we would try and fortify ourselves against further disaster, against further hurt and harm. And so what we do is we turn to over-functioning, numbing, or for some of us, in my case, just succumbing to pain as normal to protect ourselves from further tragedy. Now, shame... Shame complicates humanity's relationship with joy one step further because every single one of us in this room, we feel like we are sitting on a chasm edge. And across the chasm is this crowd of people on the other side. And we're all alone on this chasm and we can't get to them. And on the other side, that crowd, they all have impeccable Instagram feeds with perfect families and meaningful careers, and minimalist design sense, and eco-friendly, and morally made fashion, and friends in high places, and smiles for miles. Meanwhile, we sit on the other side of this chasm, frustrated with our jobs, and our relationships are strained, and we're unable to afford what we want. And we're just faltering, and failing, and surrounded by mundanity, and very drab reality. And we believe that there's something inherently wrong with us. That is the definition of shame. And so we believe that this pain, this lonely chasm side upon which we sit is what we deserve. It's supposed to be this way, we say unconsciously. And then we Christians in the room, we complicate our relationship with joy one extra layer further because generations of angry preachers pounding pulpits, exposing the depravity of our flesh and the hell that all of us deserve, it is ingrained within the Christian consciousness a sort of aversion to joy. Sin is fun. Therefore, if it's fun, it's probably sin. So goes the faulty teaching. And the result of that faulting teaching is that delight we think is dangerous. If we're enjoying something, it's probably sin. If we're happy, we are probably going to hell. <laughs> but the whole story arc of the Bible is a symphony of pure joy. From page one, the first commandments in Genesis were for humanity to go and enjoy creation, multiply, develop, build, delight. In fact, Adam and Eva, Adam and Eve, they were placed in Eden, Eden, literally translated the place of delight or the place of pleasure. The only command that God gave them other than to go and enjoy the place of pleasure and delight was go and enjoy the place of pleasure and delight as I have commanded you to. Don't take for yourself definitions of joy and flourishing. Don't take from that tree of the knowledge of tov and ra, good and bad. Don't define for yourself what will make you happy and right and wise and beautiful and true. Don't take from that tree. Enjoy every other tree in the garden. And of course, we have abysmally failed throughout from the moment of Genesis 3 to obey that command to not define for ourselves joy and flourishing and wisdom and beauty. But within the biblical record from Genesis to Revelation right to this modern moment here in San Diego, there is this subterraneous river, this undercurrent of joy, and it flows and it bursts forth in the darkest places in the human experience in the most surprising way. So for us this morning, biblical joy is not the absence of pain and suffering. Biblical joy is this subterraneous river, this undercurrent of hope and love and peace and faith in the midst of horrific pain and terrible suffering. 
Now, Jesus himself, who St. Paul called the second Adam, Jesus was the perfect human. And a perfect human is perfectly happy. Therefore, Jesus would have been the happiest person on this planet. Yes, we certainly see Jesus as acquainted with grief as he weeps at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And no doubt, we see Jesus getting frustrated with his disciples, firmly rebuking them. And yes, we see Jesus in what I would consider a holy rage, turning tables over in the temple as he was so upset about what they had turned the temple into. But when we look at the overall teaching of the Bible, the story arc of the Bible, which is what formed Jesus's worldview, and then when we look at the actual life and teachings of, him, of Jesus himself, what we see is this picture, and I just envision Jesus as a juggernaut of joy. Every time I do imaginative prayer with the king in my mind, he usually winks at me. The last time I did this, we were at a staff retreat and we were doing that imaginative prayer session where we were all in the boat with Jesus and the storm is just crashing around and everybody's cowering down into the boat in our imaginations as we're there with the disciples and Jesus just looks over at me and winks and says, be quiet. And all the stars bowed before the happiest human who's ever existed. I took the following list from a John Piper little booklet. It's incredible. Everything about Jesus was joy. His aim and all that he taught was the joy of his people. John 15, 11, These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus was the embodiment, the enfleshment of God who is pure joy and gives us that joy as we trust. Romans 15, 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of joy. Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit is joy. Galatians 5, 22, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. Jesus' sorrows have made a way to overcome our current sorrows with greater joys. Psalm 126, verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. God himself this morning, Christians, is our joy. Psalm 43, 4, then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Psalm 16, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The joy of Jesus and his kingdom surpasses anything that this earth might offer to us as a means of joy. Psalm 4, 7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Jesus' joy that he gives to his disciples cannot be taken. John 16, 22, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. The nations will bow before King Jesus in joy. Psalm 67, 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalm 66, 1, shout for joy to God, all the earth. And this Christmas, saints, God commands joy. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Interesting Hebrew construction here. Not what you're praying for right now, give me this desire, but he will create the desires in you as you delight in him. Psalm 33, 1. Saints of God, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Not the weird little kind of half-hearted neighbors clap that we do when we're all awkward about stuff. Full on, yes! 
shout for joy. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And this final little bit, God commanding our joy this Christmas season, is key for us. Advent needs to be for each of us a breakthrough season, a watershed moment where we collectively as God's people sit down with the Holy Spirit, the great counselor, and allow him to ask us some very disruptive questions. Has pain and anxiety become my identity? Do I know who I am without this narrative? Have I made cynicism my sort of safety and security blanket so that I don't feel weak? Have I accepted this apathy, this depression as my norm because joy just feels too vulnerable, too fragile, too terrifying? Joy is the most vulnerable emotion we can experience Joy for many of us is terrifying because it feels like holding a pyramid of marbles that can just be launched out of our grasp at any moment. And so God's response to our fear of joy was to send the angelic host. Do not be afraid, Luke 2.10. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. The good news that the angels were heralding was the birth of the Messiah, this Savior to save us from our pain. And so the God who is pure joy embodied himself in flesh for us to be able to have a, he came to make a way back, back to Eden, back to delight, back to the place of pleasure pleasure for every single one of us. Now, as apprentices of Jesus, as we practice his way, as we model our lives after his life, We have to make the choices that will form us in the same way that Jesus was formed. We are to be formed by what formed Jesus. And so Christian joy is an intentional choice this morning for every one of us based on trust and hope in the love of Jesus. And if our joy is like Jesus's joy, it doesn't mean that it's devoid of tears, frustration, and rage. We have to be more nuanced as Christians. I think we've been trained and taught that this joy is some sort of happy, clappy smile on our faces, and everybody's like, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites, and weird too. Everybody knows you're suffering. Everybody knows there's hurt and pain, and you're just like, Jesus is good. And then you go home, and you bawl your eyes out, and nobody actually gets to see reality. But Jesus's joy was interwoven in the pain and in the suffering. And Jesus had to choose in the midst of the world he created that rejected him and rebelled against him to rejoice in his Father. To trust Torah, to trust the prophets, to trust the books of wisdom, to have the truths of the Bible form his soul all the way unto the most horrific death possible into the resurrection. If you've been a Christian for very long, this is one of the first ones I ever heard. you got to make the choice to rejoice, man. Make the choice to rejoice. Let's not patty cake with this, though. Christian joy is formed through extremely hard work. If you think of Christian joy like you think of fitness, it is so easy to sit on the couch all day long and eat glazed donuts and Doritos and just Netflix binge whatever you want, but by the end of that time, you just feel absolutely miserable. Initially, the first two, in my case, usually first two or three donuts, are fantastic. 
But after a while, I'm like, this does not feel good. Fitness, though, fitness requires an intentional choice. An old CrossFit coach mentor of mine once said, the hardest part of fitness is the, first, is the five minutes before you decide to go to the gym. Or it's the, it's the 30 seconds before you decide to pick that up and put that in your face. That's the hardest part of fitness. Over time, fitness requires tiny little choices in food and in movement that over time reshape the body and the hormonal and the chemical structures of our physiology begin to transform and we feel better as we get fitter and it is extremely hard work and you have to maintain that. You have to be diligent about that. You have to be careful. You have to learn rhythms that are true to sustainability in the world that you live in with food and with movement. Joy, friends, has to be fought for and maintained, and it is strenuous work. I have just surrendered to the fact that I'm going to wake up every single morning, as I have for the last 20 years, with Satan like a wet blanket over my face, trying to suffocate joy and peace and hope out of my life. I wake up 5.30 virtually every morning of my life for the last 20 years, and I go, <gasps> here it all comes. Joy, anxiety, shame, guilt, oh, and just whispers and sometimes screams. And so I head to the couch, get my cup of coffee, and I begin this strenuous work of I choose to trust, I choose to surrender, I choose to release. And by the end of that prayer time and my prayer walk, I have a little bit more of a smile on my face. Strenuous work. Joy has to be cultivated. It has to be tended to every single day, every moment, every breath. Joy is actually a lifelong journey of slow formation developed by choice, discipline, faith, and practice. And that brings us to the back half of this teaching to get super concrete and take us into our, our Christmas gatherings and our Christmas events with our friends and family with something real to chew on. How can we actually do this? How this Christmas season and through 2023 and for the duration of our lives, how can we, like Jesus, choose joy? How can we cultivate joy? How can we strenuously work towards joy? One of my prayers for our community is that we would be a people marked by joy. People would come to Neighbors Church and they would walk away saying, Man, they are in a bunch of pain and suffering, and they're dealing with all sorts of stuff, but there's just this joy. There's a joy about them. It's all wrapped up in that angelic declaration on the night of Jesus' birth. This means of God's way to joy. Turn from fear by faith and trust in the work he's done through the Messiah. It is really that simple. It is that simple. God does not want to sit down with us and psychoanalyze all of our daddy wounds to help us. He just simply says, do not be afraid. That's it. He literally, over and over, the most often repeated command in the entirety of the scriptures is, stop being afraid. Stop being afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Over and over and over. The Bible is just ludicrous. And so we just have to deal with that at face value, the black and the white of it. God says, do not be afraid. I'm afraid. And then we need to go into the deeps. Then we need to say, why am I afraid? What's causing this fear? What am I trusting in? What am I hoping in? What am I basing my identity in? Has this fear, this anxiety, this shame, this guilt become my identity? Am I refusing to receive what Jesus has said about me, to me, and done for me? And this is where we learn to form our trust in the work that he has done through the coming of Messiah. Messiah just means anointed one, saving king. So what I'm going to do this morning for us is just break down the Messiah's work that we can meditate on over the next few weeks and for the rest of our lives into four categories, four categories for us to meditate on that will cause great joy in each of us. 
Creation, salvation, transformation, glorification. Creation, salvation, transformation, glorification. Everybody got that? Let's start with creation. To build Christian joy, to strenuously work and form our hearts and souls as Jesus' heart and soul was formed by the scriptures and through creation, we need to consider the immeasurable miracle of our sheer existence. Slow down and consider the fact that the Messiah actually made you. Part of the good news that the angels were heralding of the coming of the Messiah included the good news and the reminder that the Messiah had made us a people for himself. Colossians 1.16. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, including you, all things have been created through him and for him. Right now, no matter where you find yourself, wondering what God's purposes are for you, lost and lonely on this side of the chasm while the impeccable Instagram crowd sits over there in their fashionably sensitive clothing, <laughs> you were created in Jesus Christ. You were created through Jesus Christ, and you were created for Jesus Christ. This means that right now, you are not an accident. Every breath you breathe is because of him, because out of his love, he made you to love you. This is the foundation of Christian joy. This is a joy that cannot be taken from us. When we step back and we consider the fact that my king made me to have me as his own, and nothing will ever change that. Meaninglessness, career loss, purposelessness. He came and create, he created me, and then he came for me, and then he died for me, that he might have me as his own for all of eternity. This is the foundation, and my existence is a miracle for which I could not be any more grateful. And when I say that we need to slow down and actually consider the miracle of our very existence, I actually mean concretely we need to bring our attention to the miracle, the simple miracle that is life. Let me give you a practice here. I have been developing over the last couple of years a, a sort of meditation prayer practice that I'm just calling Adam's Prayer. Adam's Prayer. Or you could call it Eve's Prayer for, for all of our sisters. In this meditation slash practice, this prayer practice, what I like to do is I wake up in the morning, it's really effective in the mornings, and I try to pretend like I'm Adam. What would have it been like for him? Because the very first thing that Adam would have experienced coming out of unconsciousness, that's what sleep is, and you awake. The text in Genesis says that the first thing Adam would have felt was his breath going into him. What if for the next week you just committed every morning, you wake up in the morning and you pretend, I'm Adam, and you go, wow, what is that? and you feel your chest rise, and you feel air go in and out. You don't get on your phone. You do as best you can not to think about what happened on Monday, and you're not worried about Wednesday. You're just like in the darkness there as you come into consciousness. Whoa, what is this? What is this breath? And then take the morning, and you do this with all five senses. You go for a long, slow walk, a prayer walk, 
and you feel everything. Have you ever just sat and observed? Like yesterday on my prayer walk, it was so dang cold yesterday morning. I start my Sabbaths with a long walk, and I got up to watch the sunrise. And I was out walking, and I didn't take enough clothing. And so I was trying to do Adam's prayer. I was just walking about, feeling everything. And then I realized, oh, I'm really cold. And I just tried to be like, what would have it been like for Adam the first time he felt cold? And rather than getting miserable, it was exhilarating. I was like, whoa, this feels amazing. Wow. I got to go back in, though, because I'm freezing. <laughs> Have you ever just taken time to, to feel the miracle of a cozy sweater on a rainy Sunday afternoon? This, this feeling, it's a gift from my creator who made me for himself. I don't want to miss this gift. I know this sounds it's so, this is so counterintuitive to a hyper-movement, hyper-distracted culture. But when you set back and you're like, I can feel the weight of my body and gravity and the physics of the universe are holding me to this dust ball spinning through the solar system, that's an incredible miracle for which I am so thankful. And you move through every single thing. Have you ever just taken time to be like, coffee smells absolutely incredible. It's such a gift. And when I nail my Chemex in the morning, wow. <laughs> There's like a trillion different little miracles in this moment. And even when I mess up my pour over in the morning, I'm like, whoa, that's just, it's not as good, but still good. <laughs> and sounds, have you ever just sat and listened to sounds? I love my prayer walks in the morning when my neighborhood is still asleep and the sun's coming up over the east hills and the birds in San Diego are just going off. Have you ever just tried to take in all the sounds, all of them at once, like Adam would have? Whoa, what's that? Whoa, what, what's happening in my, what? Whoa! And my favorite part of Adam's prayer is sight. Like right now, looking at each of you and the colors that you're wearing and the hues of your skin, everything about you, this field of vision. Right now, I'm seeing a million miracles in this moment as if it was brand new. And the thing with Adam's prayer is it happens every second because the next second is different than this second, and we'll never get this second back. And then the following second will be different than this second that preceded it. Every moment, every breath is a new moment for us to say, whoa, I'm alive. I'm alive. I'm alive. And we do this, friends, even in our pain. It was probably well before that counseling session where I had a moment, I was sitting on my couch, one of those, if you've ever had those, those snot cry sessions in prayer, five o'clock in the morning, God, why? God, won't you? God, where are you? This pain, this anxiety, this sadness, this depression, this fear. Ooh. And I had this moment where I was like, and if you hadn't created me, I wouldn't be able to sit here blubbering with you. And even that moment of experiencing my pain became a moment of like, my existence is a miracle. Now, that brings us to meditation too. Because throughout the biblical record, and maybe for you, there are many whose pain was so overwhelming that they actually told God, I wish I had never been born. The Bible does not patty cake with the pain of this world or our own souls. It deals with it head on. So we start by the miracle of creation in the midst of our pain. But when we get to that place where our pain is so overwhelming, we have to remember our salvation. This is Christianity 101 stuff that we never leave, our salvation. 
The pain, the anxiety, the fear, the shame, the guilt that we all experience is because of sin. Sin that we have committed, sin that has been done to us, and sin that is being done around us. And there's nothing we can do about it. And so when the angel came and said, do not be afraid, the good news that they were declaring was the birth of the Savior, literally a hero, a champion, one to come and save us from all of our sin. And so whenever we reflect on our salvation as Christians, and that salvation means those of us more than that have raised a hand and said, Jesus, come into my heart, which we don't find anywhere in the New Testament. Those of us who have said, you are my king, and I bow before you in humility, and I model my life after you. Every facet of my heart, mind, soul, and strength is given over to you. That's salvation. That's discipleship. That's apprenticeship. For those, salvation biblically covers every facet of every bit of pain that we experience in this life. As we experience guilt and shame in those narratives, we come to salvation of Jesus' forgiveness on the cross where he absorbed all of our wrongs into himself. You are forgiven. One day, all of God's people will be delivered. Every person, all the unjust systems, all the oppressive situations, all of the inequities, all the unfairness, it will be made right completely and wholly. Salvation covers that. And so we as the saints of God, when we see the unjust and the oppressive systems, when we find ourselves unjustly and treated in oppressive ways, we find ourselves remembering our salvation. The king, our champion, has come, and he will make this right. The wrongs I've done and the wrong done to me, he has made right. So I need not linger and let this become my identity. My identity is my saving king has saved me from this. All sickness and all death will be totally healed. All of it. This does not mean that we greet cancer with a kiss on the cheek and a big smile on our face saying, oh, wow, what an opportunity for joy. We meet cancer like an enemy conquered by a resurrected king. We meet our own sickness, our own ailments, our own frailty, our own death with a deep, subterranean joy that wells up within us saying, take me, death, because you take me to my king. But you see, friends, this Christmas season, you will have to slow down to consider creation, to listen to the birds, to smell the flowers, to taste the coffee, to feel the feels and give thanks. You will have to slow down Stop scrolling and open the scriptures and read these texts that reveal to us the history of God becoming a human to save us from guilt and shame, oppressive systems, unjust situations, sickness and death, healing us. Remembering our salvation, it begins to produce a joy that is anything but fragile. King David, after his great sin with Bathsheba, prayed in his pain in confession in Psalm 51, please let me hear joy and gladness again. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Have you ever stopped to consider that maybe you have forgotten that you are saved, Christian? You are saved. You are saved. 
And so remembering our salvation will require prayer that continually cries out to God for guidance and for humility. It asks God to remind us that we have been made new. And it remembers salvation. Remembering salvation requires praying to be sustained by him. Ultimately, remembering our salvation reminds us that we have been reunited and made one with our God. That is the truest fountainhead of Christian joy, our reunion and union with God in him and with each other. And so as we reflect on and consider the miracle of our existence, as we remember our salvation and our union with God, making that our truest, deepest source of joy, we also are real about the fact that it's not yet complete. It's not yet complete. I am not yet fully saved from myself. I'm not yet fully saved from the pain in me and the pain of this world. And so, third meditation for this Christmas, we pursue transformation. Transformation. Creation, salvation, transformation. Friends, we need to understand this. Depression, anxiety, anger, cynicism, these aren't things necessarily that we choose. They are symptoms of the sickness of sin. Depression, anxiety, anger, cynicism, these are the malformations of our souls turned away from God. They're the bruises and the woundings of our brokenness. And so when the Messiah came, what the angels declared was that the Messiah would now create a new people for himself, and this new people would be governed and empowered by the indwelling spirit. And so, as I said, the disciples of Christ who have committed their life to Jesus, St. Paul would say, now the Holy Spirit indwells us, and everything has been made brand new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. But that newness has to be worked out over the duration of our life. We are being transformed. The old theological word for that is sanctification. And transformation or sanctification, in its most simple terms, looks like greater and greater obedience to Jesus and his way. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we learn from the scriptures what true flourishing and what true joy looks like, and we turn from false forms of flourishing and joy. Whereas we used to, apart from Jesus, we used to decide, oh, this path will bring joy. This course will bring joy. Through time, by the power of the Spirit, in the scriptures, with the sweet counsel of the church around us, we slowly learn more and more that Jesus says this path, this decision, this behavior is what is good and true and right and beautiful. And we stop taking from the tree of tov and ra, good and bad, and defining our own definitions of joy and righteousness and beauty. And we say, Jesus, from you, the tree of life, I choose the way of wisdom and apprenticing myself to you. And I'm going to trust that even though it seems like I'm denying something that may give me great joy, I'm going to trust that your way is going to provide true joy. Obedience to Jesus is an act of pursuing joy. Obedience to Jesus is not drudgery. It leads to true delight. Holiness, friends, is happiness. But don't understand again. This is terribly difficult. Sin and our malformed sick souls are very convinced about what makes us happy. I know I am extremely convinced about certain things that I want, and I know if I had them, they would make me happy. And the problem is, for a short time, the things that we think will give us the greatest happiness and joy, they do for a little while. Accumulating wealth, sexual freedom, self-defining, fame and celebrity, holding power over someone or holding power over something. All of these give us many doses of false joy. 
But because it's a false joy, and they are false joys that do not form us into humans that are like Jesus, these pursuits of joy can actually begin to dehumanize us, enslave us, and eventually kill us. And so obedience is that act of trust that believes there's greater joy in Jesus's way than in our own disordered desires. Creation, salvation, transformation, and then finally, good old Bible word, glorification. This one has become maybe the most important to me over these last few years. I buried my grandmother this year. I buried my wife's father this year. Day in, day out, as pastors, my wife and I sit and listen to the stories of terrible, terrible loss, terrible loss. And when you come up for air in those waves of grief, what you see on the horizon is the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, what you see is eternal life. If we lose sight of eternal life, we are of all people to be most pitied because it is where this is going. Glorification. All that means is that one day we will finally be fully holy like Jesus, fully happy like Jesus, completely joy-filled. These broken bodies will go into graves, and because Christ has risen, and we mysteriously are in Christ, seated at the right hand in the heavenlies alongside him right now as we speak, these bodies will follow in suit in a grand resurrection, and we will dwell together in a newly created heaven and earth where all the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and you and I will dwell without pain, shame, fear, guilt, unjust, unjust, oppressive systems done away with forever. And that must be the tether that we tie ourselves to in the midst of our pain. We must be looking forward with great faith, great anticipation, and great joy to the coming resurrection. This is how St. Paul survived the suffering of his life. And he suffered more than any of us. I can assure you of that. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. We do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. As we close, and Joshua is going to lead us in communion this morning, I want to invite you. Just take a deep breath right now like Adam, like Eve. What a gift. Take in your field of vision. Feel the weight of your body being held by Newtonian physics in this massive universe. And remember, sinner, you are called saint because of the work of the Messiah. You are holy, holy. You are forgiven. You are accepted. You are an adopted child. This is your identity. Whatever unjust or unfair or inequitable situation you are enduring right now, you will be delivered. Maybe not in this life, maybe in this life. Whatever unjust oppressive thing you have done to somebody else. 
You're free. You're holy. You're pure. And whether this morning you're just dealing with the sniffles, like my wife, or the cancer diagnosis has come, or you've already experienced that most painful, painful bit of loss, you must remember that you have been saved from death. Jesus is resurrected and alive. And so in this life, consider your creation, remember your salvation, and this Christmas season, pursue your transformation with more gusto than you ever have in your past. Get serious about your apprenticeship to Jesus. Open your hearts and say, what do you want to speak to me? Where do you want to take me? I will go. Let him wreck you. Let him have you. Let him love you because out of that love you will be transformed and you will experience moments of pure joy, not devoid of suffering and pain, but you will find yourself looking at these transformations a little more patience, a little more gentleness, a little more purity of heart and mind and soul, a little more love for the person in front of you and you will find yourself saying, that's what this is all about. I'm pretty happy. I'm experiencing real joy right now in these simple little things, the smell of a flower and I'm forgiven and the look of this person's face in front of me as I tell them I care about them. And do not forget, this Advent, the promise, the promise, the Advent, the arrival of the great dignitary, the great king, he has come and he is coming. And so with every breath, turn your heart towards that reality. It's in moments like these, in prayers like these, as I close my eyes and prepare for communion that I beg him sometimes, when I open my eyes, let it be done. <laughs> like, I could open my eyes. I remember when I very first became a Christian, I was convinced, I was utterly convinced that I would get to see the return of Jesus. I'm still convinced of it, although it's been a bit now, 20 years of me praying, closing my eyes going, yes, no, it's still just you guys. You guys are great. What I, I guess what I want to, like a good pastor, disorient you with is, do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe in your deeps that you could open your eyes and actually be with him? This is, this is what the apostle said was coming. Do you believe that? Because when you actually believe it deep down and you tend to it and you cultivate that belief, it changes the way that you're going to walk through the rest of this afternoon, the way you're going to hang out with your family and friends this week. It will change your decisions as you're sitting in front of your computer or as you are getting ready to have that drink or put that chemical in your body. It will change your decisions as you think about your money. It will change your decisions as you think about your spouse or your singleness. When you think about the possibility that you could close your eyes and wake up like Adam, like Eve, alive forever. <laughs> 